Chapter 16 The Spirit Not Striving Always And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. Genesis 6.3 In discussing this text, I will pursue the following outline of thought and will attempt to explain the following points. Roman numeral 1. What is implied in the assertion, My spirit shall not always strive with man? Roman numeral 2. What is not intended by the spirit's striving? Roman numeral 3. What is intended by it? Roman numeral 4. How it can be known when the spirit strives with an individual. Roman numeral 5. What is intended by his not striving always? Roman numeral 6. Why he will not always strive. Roman numeral 7. Some consequences of his ceasing to strive with people. Roman numeral 1. What is implied in the assertion, My spirit shall not always strive with man? 1. It is implied in this assertion that the spirit does sometimes strive with people. It is nonsense to affirm that he will not always strive if the fact that he does sometimes strive is not implied. Beyond all question, the text assumes the doctrine that God, by His Spirit, does strive sometimes with sinners. 2. It is also implied that people resist the Spirit, for there can be no strife unless there is resistance. If sinners always yielded at once to the teachings and guidance of the Spirit, there could be no striving on the part of the Spirit in the sense implied here, and it would be totally improper to use the language that is used here. In fact, the language of our text implies long-continued resistance. It continues for so long that God declares that the struggle will not be kept up on His part forever. I am well aware that sinners are inclined to think that they do not resist God. They often think that they really want the Spirit of God to be with them and to strive with them. What? Indeed. Think of this. If a sinner really wanted the Spirit of God to convert or to lead him, how could he resist the Spirit? But in fact, he does resist the Spirit. What Stephen affirmed of of the Jews of his time is true in general of all sinners. Ye do always resist the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51 If there were no resistance on the sinner's part, there could be no striving on the part of the Spirit. Therefore, it is absolutely absurd to think that a sinner in a state of mind to resist the Spirit would still sincerely desire to be led into truth and duty by the Spirit. 
However, sinners are sometimes so deceived about themselves and are so blinded to their true character as to imagine that they want God to strive with them while really they are resisting all he is doing and are ready to resist all he will do. Roman numeral 2. We must notice, secondly, what is not intended by the Spirit's striving. The main thing to be observed here is that there is not any form of physical struggling or any effort whatsoever. It is not any force applied to our bodies. The Spirit's striving does not attempt to urge us literally along toward God or heaven. This is not to be thought of at all. Roman numeral 3. What then is the striving of the Spirit? The striving of the Spirit is a power of God applied to the mind of man that sets truth before his mind, debating, reasoning, convincing, and persuading. The sinner resists God's claims, criticizes them, and argues against them, and then God, by His Spirit, meets the sinner and debates with him, similar to how two people might debate and argue with each other. You are not, however, to think that the Holy Spirit does this with an audible voice to the human ear, but rather He speaks to the mind and to the heart. The inner ear of the soul can hear the Spirit's whispers. Our Savior taught that when the Comforter would come, He would reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 16, 8. Reprove, as used here, refers in its proper sense to judicial proceedings. When the judge has heard all the testimony and the arguments of counsel, he sums up the whole case and lays it before the jury bringing out all the strong points and conveying them, with all their condensed and accumulated power, upon the condemnation of the criminal. This is reproving him in the original and legitimate sense of the word used here by our Savior. It is in this way that the Holy Spirit reproves the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Therefore, the Spirit convinces or convicts the sinner by testimony, by argument, and by gathering all the strong points of the case against him under circumstances of impactful solemnness and power. Roman numeral 4. How can it be known when the Spirit of God strives with an individual? When the Spirit of God strives with an individual, it is not known by direct recognition of His action through any of your physical senses. For His presence is not revealed to these senses. It is not known directly by our consciousness. For the only proper subjects of consciousness are the acts and states of our own minds. However, we know the presence and operation of the Spirit by His works. The results He produces are the legitimate proofs of His presence.
Therefore, a person under the Spirit's influence finds his attention focused on the great concerns of his soul. The solemn questions of duty and responsibility to God are continually pushing themselves upon his mind. If he is a student studying his lesson, his mind is drawn away continually before he realizes to think of God and of the judgment to come. He turns his attention back to his books, but soon it is off again. How can he neglect these matters of infinite importance to his future well-being? It is the same with people of every calling. The Spirit of God turns the mind and draws it to God and the concerns of the soul. When such results take place, you may know that the Spirit of God is the cause, for who does not know that this drawing and leaning of the mind toward God is by no means natural to the human heart? When it does occur, therefore, we may know that the special influence of God is in it. Again, when a person finds himself convicted of sin, he may know that this is the Spirit's work. It is one thing to know that you are a sinner, and quite another to feel a realizing sense of it, and to have the truth take mighty hold of the deepest sensibilities of the soul. The latter sometimes takes place. You may see the person's countenance fallen and his eyes downcast, and his whole demeanor is as if he has disgraced himself by some terrible crime, or as if he had suddenly lost all the friends he ever had. I have often met with unrepentant sinners who looked condemned, as if conscious guilt had taken hold of their inmost soul they would not be aware that they are revealing in their countenances the deep workings of their hearts, but the observing eye could not help seeing it. I have also seen the same among backslidden professors of Christianity, resulting from the same cause, the Spirit of God reproving them of sin. Sometimes this conviction is of a general nature and sometimes it is more specific. It may enforce only the general impression. I am all wrong. I am completely abhorrent and hateful to God. My whole heart is a cesspool of abomination in His sight. In other cases, it may seize upon some specific form of sin, hold it up before the sinner's mind, and make him see his infinite horridness before God for this sin. It may be a sin he has never thought of before, or he may have considered it a very light matter. But now, through the Spirit, it will rise up before his mind in such features of ugliness and loathsomeness that he will abhor himself. He sees sin in a perfectly new light. Many things are sins now that he never considered to be sins before. Again, the Spirit not only convinces people of the fact that such things are sins, but he also convicts the mind of the great offense and deserved punishment of sin. The sinner is made to feel that his sin deserves the most dreadful damnation. 
The case of an unbeliever whom I know may serve to illustrate this. He had lived in succession with two pious wives. He had read almost every book he could find on the inspiration of the Scriptures. He had disputed with, criticized, and often thought himself to have triumphed over believers in the Bible. In fact, he was the most skillful unbeliever I ever saw. It was remarkable that in connection with his unbelief, he had no proper views of sin. He had indeed heard much about some dreadful depravity that had come down in the flow of human blood from Adam and was itself a physical thing. But, as usual, he had no oppressive consciousness of sin, even though he had his share of this original stain. His mind, consequently, was quite at ease in respect to the guilt of his own sin. In time, however, a change came over him, and his eyes were opened to see the horrible enormity of his sin. I saw him one day so weighed down with sin and shame that he could not look up. He bowed his head upon his knees, covered his face, and groaned in agony. I left him in this condition and went to the prayer meeting. Before long, he entered the meeting as he never entered before. As he left the meeting, he said to his wife, You have long known me as a strong-hearted unbeliever, but my unbelief is all gone. I cannot tell you what has become of it. It all seems to me now as complete nonsense. I do not understand how I could ever have believed and defended it. I seem to myself like a man called to view some glorious and beautiful structure in order to pass his judgment upon it but who dares to judge and condemn it after having caught only a dim glimpse of one obscure corner. This is just what I have done in condemning the glorious Bible and the glorious government of God. The secret of all this change in his mind toward the Bible lay in the change of his views as to his own sin. Before, He had not been convicted of sin at all. Now he sees it in some of its true light, and he really feels that he deserves the deepest hell. Of course, he now sees the relevance, beauty, and glory of the gospel system. He is now in a position in which he can clearly see one of the strongest confirmations of the truth of the Bible its perfect adaptation to meet the needs of the sinful human race. It is remarkable to see what power there is in conviction of sin to break up and annihilate the delusions of error. For instance, no one can fully see his own sin and remain a universalist, considering it unjust for God to send him to hell. When I hear someone talking in defense of universalism, I know he does not understand anything about sin. He has not begun to see his own sin in its true light. It is the blindest of all mental obsessions to think that the little inconveniences of this life are all that sin deserves. Once someone sees his own sin as God sees it, 
he will be amazed to think that he ever held such an idea. The Spirit of God pouring light upon the sinner's mind will soon overthrow universalism. I once labored in a village in the state of New York where universalism prevailed extensively. The leading man among them had a sick wife who agreed with him in this belief. She was near death, and I called to see her to try to expose the utter fallacy of her delusion. After I had left, her husband returned, and his wife, her eyes being now opened, cried out to him as he entered, Oh, my dear husband, you are on the way to hell. Your universalism will ruin your soul forever. He was greatly enraged, and learning that I had been talking with her, his rage was kindled against me. Where is he now? he asked. He has gone to the meeting, was the reply. I'll go there and shoot him, he said. He grabbed his loaded pistol, as I was informed, and he headed out. When he entered the meeting, I was preaching, I think, from Matthew 23:33. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? At the time, I knew nothing about his purpose and nothing about his pistol. He listened a while, and then all at once, in the midst of the meeting, he leaned back on his seat and cried out, Oh, I am sinking to hell! Oh, God, have mercy on me! His universalism went away in a moment. He saw his sin and realized that he was sinking to hell. This change in him was not my work for I could produce no such effects as these. I was indeed trying to show from my text what sinners deserve, but the Spirit of God and nothing less could bring conviction of sin like this. Another result of the Spirit is developed in the case of those people who are aware of much hardness and coldness of heart. It frequently happens that people think they are Christians because they have so much emotion on religious subjects. To undeceive them, the Spirit directs their attention to some truth that dries up all their feeling and leaves their hopes stranded on the beach. Now they are in great agony. The more I hear, they say, the less I feel. I was never in the world so far from being convicted of sin. I will certainly go to hell. I do not have an ounce of feeling. I cannot feel if I die. The explanation of this remarkable condition is usually that the Spirit of God sees their danger. He sees them deceiving themselves by relying on their feelings, and therefore he brings some truths before their minds that arrange the opposition of their hearts against God and dry up the fountains of their feelings. Then they see how perfectly hard their hearts are toward God. This is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit also convicts the soul of the sin of unbelief. Sinners are very inclined to think that they do believe the gospel. They confuse faith with a mere intellectual assent, 
and so blind themselves into thinking that they believe God in the sense of gospel faith. However, once the Spirit reveals their own hearts to them, they will see that they do not believe in God in the same way that they believe in their fellow men, and that instead of having confidence in God and resting on His words of promise as they do on promises of people, they do not rest on God at all, but are full of anxiety lest God should fail to fulfill His own words. They see that instead of being childlike and trustful, they are full of trouble, apprehension, and unbelief. They also see that this is a horribly sinful state of heart. They see the sin of not resting in His promises. They see the horrible sin of not believing with the heart every word God ever uttered. This change is the work of the Spirit. Our Savior mentions it as one of the effects brought about by the Spirit, that He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on Me. John 16, 8 and 9. In fact, we find that this is one of the characteristic works of the Spirit. In conversing recently with a man who has been for many years a professor of religion, but having little victory over sin, he remarked, I have been thinking of this truth, that God cares for me and loves me, and through Jesus Christ has offered me eternal life, and that now I deserve to be damned if I do not believe. Stretching out his pale hand, he said with great energy, I will go to hell if I will not believe. All this is the work of the Spirit, this making a person see the sin and deserving of hell because of unbelief, this making a sinner see that everything else is only straw compared with the eternal rock of God's truth. The Spirit also makes people see the danger of dying in their sins. A young man said, I'm afraid to go to sleep at night, for I am afraid that I might awaken hell. Sinners often know what this feeling is. I remember having this thought once impressed upon my mind, and I was so much agonized that I almost thought I was dying right then and there. I can never express the terror and the agony of my soul in that hour. Sinner, if you have these feelings, it is a solemn time with you. Moreover, the Spirit makes sinners feel the danger of being given up by God. It often happens that sinners, convicted by the Spirit, are made to feel that if they have not been given up already, they are in the most imminent danger of it and must rush for the gate of life now or never. They see that they have so terribly sinned and have done so much to provoke God to give them over that their last hope of being accepted is fast dying away. Sinners, have any of you ever felt this way? 
Have you ever trembled in your very soul, lest you should be given over to a reprobate mind before another Lord's day, or maybe even before another morning? If so, you may attribute this to the Spirit of God. Even more, the Spirit often convicts sinners of the great blindness of their minds. It seems to them that their minds are full of complete darkness, a darkness that can be felt. This is really the natural state of the sinner, but he is not aware of it until enlightened by the Spirit of God. When thus enlightened, he begins to appreciate his own exceeding great blindness. He now becomes aware that the Bible is a sealed book to him, for he finds that although he reads it, its meaning is immersed in impenetrable darkness. Have not some of you been aware of such an experience as this? Have you not read the Bible with the distressing awareness that your mind was by no means appropriately affected by its truth? Did you not have the conviction that you did not get hold of its truth to any good purpose at all? This is how people are enlightened by the Spirit to see the real state of their case. The Spirit shows sinners their total alienation from God. I have seen sinners so strongly convicted of this that they would come right out and say, I know that I do not have the least inclination to return to God. I am aware that I don't care whether I have any Christianity or not. I have often seen professed Christians in this state aware that their hearts are entirely alienated from God and from all harmony with His character or government. Their deep backslidings, or their complete lack of all Christianity, has been so revealed to their minds by the Spirit as to become a matter of most distinct and impressive consciousness. Sinners made to see themselves this way by the Spirit often find that when they pour out their words before God for prayer, their heart won't go. I once said to a sinner, Come now and give up your heart to God. I will, he said, but in a moment he cried out, My heart won't go. Have not some of you been compelled to say the same? my heart won't go? If so, then you know by experience one of the results of the Spirit's convicting power. When the Spirit of God is not with people, they can speak out their long prayers before God and never think or seem to care how prayerless their hearts are all the time and how utterly far from God they are. But when the Spirit sheds His light on the soul, the sinner sees how miserable a hypocrite he is. Then he cannot pray so smoothly, so loosely, and so self-complacently. The Spirit of God often convinces people that they are ashamed of Christ, and that in truth they do not want Christianity. It sometimes happens that sinners do not feel ashamed of being thought seriously inclined until they come to be convicted of sin. 
This is how it was with me. I bought my first Bible as a law book, and I laid it beside my Blackstone's Law Commentary. I studied it as I would any other law book, my only purpose being to find in it the great principles of law. I never once thought of being ashamed of reading it then. I read it as freely and as openly as I read any other book. However, as soon as I became awakened to the concerns of my soul, I put my Bible out of sight. If it were lying on my table when people came into my office, I was careful to throw a newspaper over it. Before long, however, the conviction that I was ashamed of God and of His Word came over me with overwhelming force and served to show me the horrible state of my mind toward God. I suppose that the general course of my experience is by no means uncommon among unrepentant sinners. The Spirit also convicts people of worldly-mindedness. Sinners are always in this state of mind, but are often not fully aware of the fact until the Spirit of God makes them see it. I have often seen people pushing their worldly projects most intensely, but when addressed on the subject, they would say, I don't care much about the world. I am pursuing this business right now mainly because I want to be doing something. However, when the Holy Spirit shows them their own hearts, they are in agony that they might never be able to break away from the dreadful power of the world upon their souls. Then they see that they have been the most absolute slaves on earth, slaves to the passion for worldly good. The Holy Spirit often makes such a personal application of the truth as to give the impression that the preacher is speaking to a person personally and intends to describe the case and character of him who is the subject of his influence. The individual thus convinced of sin may think that the preacher has in some way come to a knowledge of his character and intends to describe it. He thinks that the preacher is referring specifically to him and is preaching to him. He wonders who has told the preacher so much about him. All this often takes place when the preacher likely does not even know that such a person is in the assembly and knows absolutely nothing of his history. In this way, the Holy Spirit, who knows his heart and his entire history, becomes very personal in the application of truth. Do any of you have this experience? Has it now or at any other time seemed to you as if the preacher meant you and that he was describing your case? Then the Spirit of the living God is upon you. I have often seen individuals drop their heads under the preaching almost as if they had been shot. They might have been unable to look up again during the whole service. Afterward, I have often heard that they thought I was referring specifically to them, and they thought others were thinking of them too. Maybe they imagined that many people were looking at them 
and therefore they did not look up. When in fact, neither I nor anyone in the congregation, in all probability, so much as thought of them. In this way, a bow drawn at random often lodges an arrow between the joints of the sinner's coat of armor. Sinner, is it so with you? The Holy Spirit often convinces sinners of the enmity of their hearts against God. Most unrepentant sinners, and perhaps all deceived professors of religion, unless convinced to the contrary by the Holy Spirit, think that they are in general friendly to God. They are far from believing that this carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans 8, 7. They think that they do not hate God, but on the contrary, they think that they love Him. This delusion must be torn away or they will be lost. To do this, the Spirit so arranges it that some truths are presented that clearly show their real enmity against God. The moralist who has been the almost Christian or the deceived professor of Christianity begins to criticize, to find fault, and finally to condemn, to oppose the preaching and the meetings, the methods, and the men. It is possible that the man who has a pious wife and who has thought of himself and has been thought by her to be almost a Christian begins by criticizing the truth and finding fault with the measures and the methods. Then he refuses to go to church meetings and finally forbids his wife and family going. Very frequently, his enmity of heart will boil over in a horrible manner. He may have no thought that this boiling up of hell within him is occasioned by the Holy Spirit, revealing to him the true condition of his heart. His Christian friends also may mistake his situation and be ready to conclude that something is wrong in the matter or manners or measures of the preacher that is causing difficulty for this man. But beware what you say or do. In many such cases that have come under my own observation, it has turned out that the Holy Spirit was at work in those hearts, revealing to them their real enmity against God. He does this by presenting those truths in that manner and under those circumstances that produce these results. He pushes this process until he compels the person to see that his heart is filled with enmity to God and to what is right, that it is not man but God to whom he is opposed that it is not error but truth, that it is not the manner but the matter, and that it is not the measures but the God of truth that he hates. Additionally, the Spirit often convicts sinners powerfully of the deceitfulness of their own hearts. Sometimes this conviction becomes really appalling. They see that they have been deceiving themselves in matters too plain to justify any mistake and too consequential to give any excuse for willful blindness. 
they are perplexed with what they see in themselves. The Spirit also frequently strips the sinner of his excuses and shows him clearly their great foolishness and absurdity. I recall that this was one of the first things in my experience in the process of conviction. I lost all confidence in any of my excuses, for I found them to be so foolish and futile that I could not stand by them. This was my state of mind before I had ever heard of the work of the Spirit or knew at all how to judge whether my own mind was under His influence or not. I found that whereas before I had been very strong in my excuses and objections, I was now completely weak, and it seemed to me that any child could defeat my arguments. In fact, I did not need to be defeated by anyone, for my excuses and criticisms had sunk to nothing of themselves, and I was deeply ashamed of them. I had essentially worked myself out of all their mazes, so they could bewilder me no longer. I have since seen many people in the same condition, weak as to their excuses, their old defensive armor all torn off, and their hearts laid naked to the arrows of God's truth. Sinners, have any of you known what it is to have all your excuses and explanations fail you? To feel that you have no courage and no defensible reasons for pushing forward in the course of sin? If so, then you know what it is to be under the convicting power of the Spirit. The Spirit convicts people of the foolishness of seeking salvation in any other way than through Christ alone. Often, without being aware of it, a sinner will be seeking salvation in some other way than through Christ, and he will be looking to his good deeds, to his own prayers, or to the prayers of some Christian friends. But if the Spirit ever saves him, he will tear away these delusive schemes and show him the utter uselessness of every other way than through Christ alone. The Spirit will show him that there is only this one way in which it is naturally possible for a sinner to be saved, and that all attempts toward any other way are forever vain and worse than worthless. All self-righteousness must be rejected entirely and Christ alone must be sought. Have you ever been made to see this? You who are professed Christians, is this your experience? The Spirit convinces people of the great foolishness and insanity of clinging to a hope that will not sanctify. The Bible teaches that everyone who has the genuine gospel hope purifies himself, even as Christ is pure. 1 John 3.3 3. In this passage, the Apostle John plainly intends to affirm a universal proposition. He states a universal characteristic of the Christian hope. Whoever has a Christian hope should ask, Do I purify myself, even as Christ is pure? If not, 
then mine is not the true gospel hope. Yet thousands of professed Christians have a most inefficient hope. What is it? Does it really lead them to purify themselves as Christ is pure? Nothing like it. It is not a hope that they will see Christ as He is, will be forever with Him, and will be like Him, too. But it is mainly a hope that they will escape hell and go as an alternative to some unknown heaven. Such professed Christians cannot but know that their experience lacks the witness of their own consciences that they are living for God and bearing His image. If such people are ever saved, they must first be convinced of the foolishness of a hope that leaves them unsanctified. You professors of religion who have lived a worldly life so long, are you not ashamed of your hope? Do you not have good reason to be ashamed of a hope that has no more power than yours has had? Are there not many here who in the honesty of their hearts must say, either there is no power in the gospel, or I don't know anything about it? The gospel affirms as a universal fact of all those who are not under the law but under grace that sin shall not have dominion over you. Romans 6, 14. Will you then go before God and say, Lord, you have said, sin shall not have dominion over you. But Lord, that is all false, for I believe the gospel and am under grace, but sin still has dominion over me. No doubt in this case there is a mistake somewhere, and you should sincerely ask, Will I blame this mistake and falsehood upon God, or will I admit that it must be in me alone? The Apostle Paul has said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans 1.16 Is it so to you? Paul has also said, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 Do you know this by your own experience? Paul adds that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. Romans 1, 2-5 Is all this in accord with your experience, professed Christian? Is it true that your hope makes not ashamed? Does it produce such glorious fruits unto holiness as are here described? If you were to test your experience by the word of the living God and open your heart to be searched by the Spirit, would you not be convinced that you do not embrace the gospel in reality? 
The Holy Spirit also convinces people that all their goodness is selfish and that self is the end of all their efforts, of all their prayers and religious exercises. I once spent a little time with a family of a man who was a leading member in a Presbyterian church. He asked me, What would you think of a man who is praying for the Spirit every day, but does not get the blessing? I answered, I would suppose that he is praying selfishly. But suppose, he replied, that he is praying for the sake of promoting his own happiness. He can be purely selfish in that, I replied. The devil might do as much, and would perhaps do just the same, if he supposed he could make himself happier by it. I then cited the prayer of David, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Psalm 51, 11-13 This seemed to be a new doctrine to him, and he turned away, as I later learned, in great anger and trouble. In the first rush of feeling, he prayed that God would cut him down and send him to hell so that he would not have to confess his sin and shame before all the people. He saw that, in fact, his past religion had been all selfish, but the dread of confessing this was at first horrifying to him. However, he saw the possibility of mistake, that his hopes had been all misleading, and that he had been working his self-deceived course while quickly headed toward the depths of hell. Finally, it is the Spirit's work to make self-deceived people feel that they are now having their last call from the Spirit. When this impression is made, let it by all means be heeded. It is God's own voice to the soul. Out of a great multitude of cases under my observation, in which God has distinctly made sinners feel that the present call by God was their last call, I do not remember one in which it did not prove to be so. This is a truth of solemn importance to the sinner and should make the warning voice of God ring in his ear like the forewarning knell of the second death. Roman numeral 5 What is meant by the Spirit's not always striving? I understand the meaning to be not that he will at some period withdraw from among mankind, but that he will withdraw from the individual in question, or maybe, as in the text, from a whole generation of sinners. In its general application now, the principle seems to be that the Spirit will not follow the sinner onward down to his grave. There will be a limit to his efforts in the case of each sinner and this limit is perhaps ordinarily reached a longer or a shorter time before death. At some uncertain, terrible point, he will reach it and pass it. Therefore, 
Every sinner needs to understand his danger of grieving the Spirit away forever. Roman numeral 6 Next, we are to inquire why God's Spirit will not always strive. God's Spirit will not always strive, but it is not because God is not compassionate, patient, slow to anger, and great in mercy. It is not because he runs out of patience and acts unreasonably. By no means. It is nothing like this at all. Why, then, will the Spirit not always strive? 1. Longer striving will do the sinner no good. By the very laws of mind, conversion must be brought about through the influence of truth. But it is a known law of mind that when truth is resisted, it loses its power upon the mind that resists it. Every successive instance of resistance weakens its power. If the truth does not take hold with power when fresh, it is not likely to do so ever after. Therefore, when the Spirit reveals truth to the sinner, and he hardens himself against it and resists the Spirit, there remains little hope for him. We may expect God to give him up for lost. This is what the Bible teaches. 2. Why does God's Spirit cease to strive with sinners? A second reason may be because to strive longer not only does the sinner no good, but it results in positive evil. Sin is measured by light. The more light, the greater the sin. Therefore, more light revealed by the Spirit along with longer striving, might serve only to increase the sinner's guilt and, of course, his final woe. It is better, then, for the sinner himself, after all hope of his repentance is gone, that the Spirit would leave him than that his efforts would be prolonged in vain, to no other result than to increase the sinner's light and guilt, and consequently his endless curse. It is in this case a real mercy to the sinner that God would withdraw his spirit and let him alone. 3. God's spirit may cease to strive with sinners because sinners sin willfully when they resist the Holy Spirit. It is the very work of the Spirit to shine light before their minds. Of course, in resisting the Spirit, they must sin against light. Therefore, their sin is dreadful. We are often greatly shocked with the bold and daring sins of people who may not, after all, have much illumination of the Spirit, and of course have comparatively little guilt. But when God's ministers come to the souls of men with His messages of truth, and people despise or neglect them, and when God's providence also enforces His truth, yet people still resist, then they are greatly guilty. 
how much more so when God comes by His Spirit and they resist God under the blazing light of His Spirit's illuminations? How infinitely increased is their guilt now? 4. Another reason why the Spirit of God will not always strive is because their resistance tempts the forbearance of God. Sinners never so grievously tempt the forbearance of God as when they resist His Spirit. You may see this advanced in the Jews of Stephen's time. Stephen said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do ye. Acts 7.51 He had been summarizing their national history and running fearlessly across their Jewish prejudices, laboring in the deep sincerity and faithfulness of his soul to set before them their sin in persecuting and murdering the Son of God. And what do they do? Enraged at these rebukes, they gnashed at him with their teeth. They attacked him with the spirit of demons and stoned him to death, even though they saw the very glory of God beaming in his eye and on his countenance as if it had been an angel's. Did not this fearful deed of theirs seal up their damnation? Read the history of their nation and see. They attempted God to the last limit of his forbearance, and now what remained for them but swift and terrible judgments. The wrath of God arose against them, and there was no remedy. 2 Chronicles 36.16 Their resistance of the Holy Spirit pressed the forbearance of God until it could bear no more. It is a solemn truth that sinners tempt God's forbearance most dangerously when they resist His Spirit. Think how long some of you have resisted the Holy Spirit. The claims of God have been presented and urged upon you again and again, but you have just as often put them away. You have said unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Job 21.14 Now do you not have the utmost reason to expect that God will take you at your word? 5. There is a point beyond which forbearance is not a virtue. This is and must be true in all governments. No government could possibly be maintained that would push the indulgence of a spirit of forbearance toward the guilty beyond all limits. There must be a point beyond which God cannot go without peril to His government, and we can be assured that He will never go past this point. Suppose we would just as often see old gray-headed sinners converted as youthful sinners, and this would be the general course of things. Would not this bring harm to God's government and even to the sinners themselves? Would not sinners take encouragement from this 
and remain in their sins until their lusts were worn out, and until they themselves would rot in their corruptions? They would say, We will be just as likely to be converted in our old age, corrupt with long-indulged lusts and filthy with the unchecked growth of every abomination of the heart of man, as if we were to turn to God in the freshness of our youth. Let us then have the pleasures of sin first, and the unwelcomeness of Christianity when the world can give us no more to enjoy. However, God intends to have people converted young, if at all, and one reason for this is that he intends to convert the world, and therefore must have laborers trained up for the work in the morning of life. If he were to make no discrimination between the young and the aged, converting them from each class alike, or mainly from the aged, the means for converting the world would utterly fail, and in fact, on such a plan, the result would be that no sinners at all would be converted. Therefore, there is a necessity for the general fact that sinners must submit to God in early life. Roman numeral 7 Consequences of the Spirit's Ceasing to Strive with Men One consequence will be a confirmed hardness of heart. It is inevitable that the heart will become much more hardened and the will more fully set to do evil. Another consequence will be a confirmed opposition to Christianity. This will be likely to manifest itself in dislike to everything on the subject often with great impatience and anger when urged to attend the subject seriously. People are often so settled in their opposition to God and His Word that they might refuse to have anything said to them personally. You may also expect to see them opposed to revivals and to gospel ministers, and especially to those ministers who are most faithful to their souls. All those means of promoting revivals that are used to awaken the conscience will be especially abhorrent to their hearts. Usually such people become bitter in their dispositions, cynical, haters of all Christians, delighting, if they dare, to distribute slander and abuse against those whose piety annoys and disturbs their senseless ease in sin. Another consequence of being forsaken by the Spirit is that people will commit themselves to some refuge of lies and will settle down in some form of fatal error. I have often thought that it was almost impossible for people to embrace fatal error completely unless they are first forsaken by the Spirit of God. From observation of numerous cases, I believe this to be the case with the great majority of universalists. They are described by Paul. They received not the love of the truth, that they may be saved, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 11. They hate the truth. 
they are more than willing to be deceived, and they are uneasy when pressed with gospel claims. Therefore, they are ready to grasp at any form of delusion that sets aside these claims and boldly asserts, Ye shall not surely die. Genesis 3.4 It has long been an impression on my mind that this is the usual course of feeling and thought that leads to universalism. There may be exceptions, but the great majority go into this delusion from the starting point of being abandoned by the Spirit. Thus abandoned, they become disagreeable and unfriendly. They hate all Christians, as well as all those truths that God and His people love. This could not be the case if they had the love of God in their hearts. It could not well be the case if they were enlightened and restrained by the present influence of the divine Spirit. Generally, those who have been left by God end up with a seared conscience. They are distinguished by a great numbness of mind. They are by choice blind and hardened in respect to the nature and guilt of sin. Although their intelligence affirms that sin is wrong, yet they do not feel it or care about it. They can know the truth and still be thoughtless of its application to their own hearts and lives. God has left them, and of course, the natural tendencies of the depraved heart are developed without restraint. This type of sinner will inevitably grow worse and worse. They become loose in habits. They become careless in their observance of the Lord's Day. They slide backward in regard to alcohol and all similar moral subjects. They slip into some of the many forms of sin and perhaps immorality and crime. If they had been conscientious against the use of tobacco, they relinquish their conscientiousness and throw a loose rein on their lusts. Basically, they are inclined to grow worse and worse in every branch of morals, and often become so changed that you would hardly recognize them. It is common for them to become profane swearers and to steal a little at first, and then to later steal much. If God does not restrain them, they go down by a short and steep descent to the depths of hell. Another consequence of being abandoned by the Spirit will be certain damnation. There can be no mistake about this. It is just as certain as if they were already there. This state is not always attended with indifference of feeling. There may be at times a most intense excitement of the emotion. The Bible describes the case of some who sin willfully after they have received a knowledge of the truth, and there remains for them only a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. I have seen some people like this, and I pray that I will never see such agony and wretchedness again. They are the very pictures of despair and horror. Their eyes are fully open to see their ruined state, and they exclaim, I know I am abandoned by God forever. 
I have sinned away my day of hope and mercy, and I know I will never repent. I have no heart to repent, although I know that I must or I will be damned. They will speak such language as this with a settled, positive tone and with an air of agony and despair that is enough to break a heart of stone. Another common consequence is that Christians find themselves unable to pray in faith for such sinners. There are some in almost every community for whom Christians cannot pray. I believe it is common for many Christians, without being aware of each other's state, to have a similar experience. For example, several Christians are praying in secret for some specific individual, and they have considerable freedom in prayer up to a certain moment. And then they find that they cannot pray for him any longer. They happen to meet together, and one of them says, I have been praying a long time with great interest for that certain unrepentant sinner, but at a particular time I found myself all closed up in prayer. I could not get hold of the Lord again for him, and have never been able to since. Another person, and then another, says, I have felt just so myself. I did not know that anyone else felt as I have but you have described my case precisely. If you will go to that sinner, he will tell you a story that will explain the whole situation. He will show that he came to that eventful moment to some fatal decision, grieved the Spirit, and was abandoned by God. The Spirit ceased to strive with him, and consequently ceased to draw out prayer in his behalf in the hearts of God's people. Finally, when God has ceased to strive with sinners, no means whatsoever used for the purpose can be successful for their salvation. If you, sinner, have passed that dreadful point, you will no longer be profited by my preaching even if I were to preach to you 5,000 sermons. No, you could not be profited even though an angel or even Christ himself would come and preach to you. All would be only in vain. You are left by God to fill up the measure of your iniquities. Genesis 15, 16. Remarks 1. Christians may understand how to account for the fact already noticed, that there are some for whom they cannot pray. Even while they are walking with God and are trying to pray for particular individuals, they may find themselves utterly unable to do so, and this may be the explanation. I would not, however, in such a case, take it for granted that all is right with myself, for perhaps it is not. However, if I have the best evidence that all is right between myself and God, then I must conclude that God has forsaken that sinner and does not want me to pray for him 
any longer. 2. Sinners should be aware that light and guilt keep pace with each other. They are increased and lessened together, which explains the solemn responsibility of being under the light and the strivings of the Spirit. While enlightened and urged to duty by the Spirit, sinners are under the most solemn circumstances that can ever occur in their entire lives. Indeed, no period of the sinner's existence through its eternal duration can be so momentous as this. Yes, sinner, while the Spirit of God is pleading and striving with you, angels appreciate the solemnity of the hour. They know that the destiny of your soul is being decided for eternity. What an object of infinite interest! An immortal mind is on the turning point of its eternal destiny. God is debating and persuading. The sinner is resisting, and the struggle is about to be broken off as hopeless forever. Suppose, sinner, that you could set yourself aside and look on and be a spectator of such a scene. Were you ever in a court of justice when the question of life and death was about to be decided? The witnesses have all been heard. The lawyers have been heard. It is announced that the jury is ready to deliver its verdict. Now pause and observe the scene. Note the anxiety depicted in every countenance and how eagerly yet with what awful solemnity they wait for the decision about to be made, and with good reason, for a question of momentous interest is to be decided. If this question involving only the earthly life is so momentous, how much more so is the sinner's situation when the life of the soul for eternity is pending? How solemn while the question still is unanswered, while the spirit still strives and the sinner still resists, and no one can tell how soon the last moment of the spirit's striving may come. This should be the most solemn world in the universe. In other words, the destinies of the souls are already established. It is so in hell. All there is determined and changeless forever. It is a solemn thing indeed for a sinner to go to hell. But the most solemn point in the whole duration of his existence is that one in which the decision is made. Oh, what a world this is! Throughout all its years and centuries, we cannot see one moment on whose tender point there does not hang a balancing of the question of eternal life or eternal death. Is this a place to mess around? Is this a place to be irrational and foolish and vain? No! It would be more reasonable to trifle in any other world than in this one. 
The awful destinies of the soul are being determined here. Heaven sees it, and hell too, and all are filled with anxiety, swelling almost to agony. But you who are the subjects of all this anxiety, you can somehow mess around and play the fool and dance on the brink of everlasting woe. Isaac Watts, in his hymn based on Psalm 73, wrote, I heard the wretch profanely boast till at thy frown he fell. His honors in a dream were lost, and he awoke in hell. God represents the sinner as on a slippery steep, his feet just sliding on the very edge of a dreadful chasm. God holds him up short for a moment, and he wastes away even the short moment in insane foolishness. All hearts in heaven and in hell are beating and throbbing with intense emotion, but he is unconcerned. Oh, what madness! If sinners rightly estimated this danger of resisting the Spirit, they would be more afraid of it than of anything else whatsoever. They would consider no other dangers worthy of a moment's thought or care compared with this. It is a very common thing for sinners to grieve away the Spirit long before death. I believe this although I am aware that some people are greatly opposed to this doctrine. Do you doubt it? Think of almost the whole Jewish nation in the time of the Savior. They were given up to unbelief and corruption. They were abandoned by the Spirit of God, yet they sinned against far less light and, of course, with much less guilt than sinners now do. If God could give them up then, why may he not do so with sinners now? If he could give up the whole population of the world in Noah's time, when Noah alone stood forth as a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5, why may he not give up individual sinners now who are incomparably more guilty than they were because they have sinned against greater light than had ever shown then? It is infinitely cruel to sinners themselves to conceal this truth from them. Let them know that long before they die, they are in danger of grieving away the spirit beyond recall. This truth should be proclaimed over all the earth. Let its echo ring out through every valley and over every mountaintop throughout the world. Let every living sinner hear it and heed the timely warning. We see why so few aged sinners are converted. The fact is unmistakable and unquestionable. 
take the age of 60 and count the number converted past that age. You will find it small indeed. Few and scattered are they, like beacons on mountaintops, just barely enough to prevent the aged from utter despair of ever being converted. I am aware that unbelievers seize upon this fact to try to criticize Christianity, saying, How does it happen that the aged and wise, whose minds are developed by thought and experience, and who have passed by the period of warm youthful passion, never embrace the gospel? They would eagerly try to say that none but children and women become Christians, and that this is to be accounted for on the ground that the Christian religion rests on its appeal to the emotions and not to the intelligence. But unbelievers make a most grievous mistake in this line of reasoning. The fact under consideration should be assigned to an entirely different class of causes. The aged are only rarely converted because they have grieved away the spirit. They have become entangled in the mazes of some loved and soul-ruinous delusion and hardened in sin past the moral possibility of being converted. Indeed, it would be unwise on the part of God to convert many sinners in old age. It would be too great a temptation for human nature to bear, for at all the earlier periods of life, sinners would be looking forward to old age as the time for conversion. I have already said what I want to repeat here, that it is an immensely remarkable time when God's Spirit strives with sinners. I have reason to believe that the Spirit is striving with some of you. Even within the past week, your attention has been solemnly captured, and God has been calling upon you to repent. Are you now aware that while God is calling, you must listen? That when He speaks, you should stop and give Him your attention? Does God call you away from your lesson, and are you replying, Oh, I must study my lesson? Ah, your lesson. What is your first and main lesson? Prepare to meet thy God, Amos 4.12. But you say, The bell will ring in a few minutes and I have not finished my lesson. Yes, sinner, soon the great bell will ring. Unseen spirits will seize hold of the bell's rope and will sound the dread death knell of eternity, echoing the summons for you to come to judgment. The bell will be rung, And where will you be then, sinner? Are you prepared? Have you grasped that one great lesson, prepare to meet thy God?
In the long-passing ages, you will be asked of your lost doom how and why you came into this place of torment, and you will have to answer, Oh, I was studying my lesson when God came by His Spirit, and I could not stop to hear His call. So I exchanged my soul for my lesson. Oh, what a fool I was! Let me ask the people of God if you should not be awake in such an hour as this. How many sinners during the past week have pleaded with you to pray for their perishing souls? Have you no heart to pray? How full of critical concern and peril are these passing moments? Have you ever seen the magnetic needle of the compass go back and forth, quiver, and finally settle down fixed to its position? So it is with the sinner's destiny today. Sinners, think of your destiny as being now about to assume its fixed position. Soon, you will decide it forever and forever. Do you say, let me first go home, and there I will give myself up to God? No, sinner, no! Do not go away from here in your sin. Now is your accepted time, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Now, today, after so long a time, now is the only hour of promise. Now might be the last hour of the Spirit's presence and grace to your soul.